kicking lyrics right through your brain when you hear this saying, you'll be right as rain. Hello, welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I'm your co-host, Carlos Cooper, with me as always. Joe Hilliard. And Dave Gurney. And we are going to do what we do best, and that is drink beer, talk about movies. Uh, we have a, a nice little new release available on streaming that uh, I think a lot of folks will have some curiosity about. And maybe some of our listeners will have even beat us to the punch to watch, but hopefully you'll hear, uh, you'll enjoy hearing us talk about it. But before we get too far into that territory, we need to make sure that the drink is covered. And tonight we have 903 Brewers, uh, a Texas brewery. Joe, you were looking at some statistics today and telling us about how many Texas breweries we've had and Texas beers overall even. Well, when we were, drank our 200th beer last episode, it, it is no surprise. With Texas leads the count as far as total beers from the state and total breweries from the state. This is our 60th Texas beer, 60 out of 200. Yeehaw! I had a pregame beer, so I'm in no mood to do math, but that's a lot of beer that, that we drink right here from our home state, and I'm sure listeners across the country and across the world feel the same way, drink local first. But this is our first trip to Sherman, the hometown of Bluebell Ice Cream. Mm, that's and true. If, yeah. If you don't live in Texas, you may not know what Bluebell Ice Cream is, and we feel sorry for you. Yeah. Sherman is a city that's ripe for a brewer to go in there with kind of like that um, very tourist-centric town, small town in Texas, very tourist-centric, and the right brewery could do a lot of good business there. Right on. This is our first trip to 903 on the show. It is, although we've had a few off mic before. They, they have some good stouts, some nice adjunct stouts, but we went the other direction with this. Carlos procured us uh what they call their hazy india pale ale it is the the name of it is cloud nine had you had it before carlos or you picked this up on a whim i picked it up on a whim um i i think it came in a four pack and Mm -hmm. so i've had i've had at least one can of this on my own and Mm -hmm. thought and you know thought okay i should should spread it out a little bit we could do it on the on the show it is hazy it definitely pours hazy. I mean, that is that is a thick haze. I mean, yeah, that, that's which is nice because because a lot of times you get these breweries proclaiming their haziness, and we've talked about this, and and the haze isn't really there. The flavor may match what a hazy IPA should be, but but the look doesn't. This one has the look. Yeah, the can the can has a lot of information. Hop additions. They list five different hops that are in this brew. But also, if you look over on the side, this is an 8.7. That is mm. impressive. Yeah. And it also pairs well, they say, with porterhouse ribs and beer trading. I can't talk about you guys, but uh, none of those three things are happening tonight in the house. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are pretty, they're good about giving you a lot of info on the can. 
they, they follow, you know, this follows their normal format where it has this little section where it has a description. And then, like you said, the ABV pairs with, and it even kind of gives you a suggestion of what kind of glassware you should be. Yeah. If we push pause, Carlos, yeah, if we push pause, Carlos, I'll go grab the appropriate glass right now. I'm not drinking it in the appropriate glass. No, it's, I'm not, I'm not either. I wouldn't worry about it. No. Um, but yeah, I, I, as, as David said, um, some, uh, off mic, 903 beers have been enjoyed uh by me and david at least i'm, I'm pretty sure joe you've had some you've of this had, stuff before oh yeah i've had um, i've had right. some i've had some 903 before but yeah. anytime a, anytime a brewery gets onto the show it's always a cause for celebration i look forward oh, to for sure like, yeah. i look forward to talking about this at the end of our discussion of our first movie which is I, well, I was going to say, uh, we watch, and especially in these quarantine times, the, the three of us are watching at least two movies a week. Mm-hmm. And so typically at my house, there's an announcement, hey, before we record, I have to watch this French movie, Le Choc de Futur, uh, uh, South by Southwest. Da, da, da. We talked about it last episode. We all loved it. Sometimes I don't get any takers and I'm watching these movies by myself. But when I told everybody, guys, I have to watch a movie before we record... It's the Beastie Boys story. Yeah. Unanimous. Six, uh, five people watching that movie together. Everyone was excited about this new Beastie Boys documentary directed by Spike Jones. Well, that's that's encouraging to hear. I, w- I wouldn't have necessarily counted on the teenagers getting excited about this one, uh, but, I, but I'm excited to hear that. When you called out, did you start with, hey, ladies? I, I didn't. <laughs> I said, hey, hello, nasty. And then all of them came running. <laughs> there we go. That, that works too. Yeah, whatever form of address. Um, yeah, so we don't need to belabor the plot here too much. I mean, as is probably obvious from the very title of the uh, film, this is essentially a documentary about the Beastie Boys, their history, um, it very closely tied to a book that was released, uh, was it 2019, I think, because it was out for 29. Anyway, so a book that had come out about a year before. Um, the BC Boys book that compiled a bunch of images and stories, both from uh, Ad Rock, uh, Adam Horowitz, and Michael Diamond, the two surviving members of the group, uh, but also a lot of collaborators and peers and, and other people who they had known throughout the years are included in the book. Now, they don't really show up in the documentary in the same way. It really is more the Ad Rock and Mike D show. This is them on a stage in a theater with um, with the images and some video clips, but a lot of it is them kind of dialing on the stage. So I'll I'll leave it at that. And uh, you know, as the setup, also of note, before we lose sight, and this will tie into our second film for this episode. It is directed by frequent Beastie Boys collaborator from the past, Spike Jones who has been a photographer and film director throughout his career, um, doing a lot of different work, but but certainly a lot of music video work early on, which some of that was with the Beastie Boys. Uh, I was, the film is presented in a chronological multimedia show. And if you are in the audience, the live audience, and of course the, the documentary is called a live documentary. I can't recall, this is our two, their second documentary in two weeks, guys. I can't recall <laughs> a live documentary, at least this format presented in any other way prior. Can you guys 
Were we seeing something kind of new? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Um... The, the only thing that came to my mind as I was watching it, and it's you know not content-wise, but in terms of presentation, was an inconvenient truth. I don't know if you guys remember that doc mm-hmm. back from uh, 2000s, Al Gore, um, you know, the, spreading some information about climate change. And it was done essentially with him speaking from a podium. They had recorded, I think, a live presentation. And then, you know, obviously there were images and stuff. But yeah, I don't, it's not a very frequently used format. Um, in, in some places, it kind of feels like a little bit like a TED Talk almost. Yeah. I, I, would, I would compare it to that in some ways. And that a, a TED to... Talk with a fantastic multimedia background. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you see a cut between Mike D and Adrock on stage talking to a live audience, the a reaction of the very enthusiastic live audience, and then a cut, a full screenshot of what was being presented behind them on stage. Mm-hmm. And one thing's the truth through the Beastie Boys career, even the early career, someone was taking a lot of pictures. Mm. Because you see it's a chronological display of their career, basically told by the two surviving Beastie Boys. And um, I got to the point when they were headlining their first tour, which was around 1986, when I told the kids, yep, that's the tour that I saw, the very first concert that I ever went to here in Corpus Christi at Memorial Coliseum. I, I got to see the stage show again, the girls in the cages, the, the DJ deck is a big <laughs> six pack of Budweiser. Uh, Fishbone opened up for them, Murphy's Law opened up for them. The the screen the, the lights went down in the st- in the audience. I was all of in all of ninth grade, and Murphy's Law was first punk rock band from New York. Corpus Christi, are you ready to go to hell? And it was you know <laughs> one of the most memorable concerts that I that I can remember in our house. If anyone says, hey, let's eat French toast. Someone says, hey, I don't mean to brag, I don't mean to boast, but I'm intercontinental when I eat French toast. That's the <laughs> family we are, so that's why everyone was eager to watch this Beastie Boys documentary. And while I think it is flawed, and maybe we'll get into some of those flaws, I enjoyed myself very, very much. Yeah, I, I liked it fine, I guess. Um, I mean, I like the Beastie Boys a lot. Um, the stage presentation, TED Talk kind of format's a little odd. Um, I did really like, um, Spike Jones's inner, uh, interjections. Yeah. I thought that was funny. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, I don't, I mean, you know, it was what it was. I hear where you're coming from. I, I too, I really appreciated those moments where they kind of broke out of the typical sort of theatrical. Uh, you know, setting and and Spike Jones from the booth is like you know interjecting and talking back and forth and they're talking about whether or not they should do this gimmick of uh, or or this little uh, shtick that they had put together of the uh, what what was the phrase crazy shit I think it was crazy shit that they had animated and they had somebody say who actually in the credits it was Bill Hader who they got to read the words crazy shit yeah, but uh, you know. I was hoping there would be a little bit more of that, you know, as as it was going on, it kind of certain point I just accepted, no, it's not really going to be that inventive. And, and, you know, maybe the second half of the episode, we can talk about why I would have gone in with those 
expectations, knowing the the people involved here. Um, but from a purely like, is this a fun way to spend a couple hours with the right attitude? If you like the Beastie Boys, I think you're going to enjoy this. Um, I will say that comparing this to the experience of reading the book, I did get the book for Christmas. I'm pretty sure it was 2018 that it came out because I got it Christmas 2018. And I remember reading through it and just really loving it and enjoying it for the eclecticism because they had different people speaking. I mean, different sections were written by, again, like collaborators, friends, other folks. So there were in the mix, it kind of it read more in a in a livelier way, and obviously the images were cool and and everything. And I wish they might have found some way to incorporate more of that energy into this film version of it. Hey, did they crib? And it's not even a crib. They're the owners of the photographs. Did you see any new photographs in the multimedia presentation given in the film that weren't in the book? A lot of the still images were ones that I recognized from the book or I'd seen otherwise. Um, certainly the ability to have video. They showed quite a few, you know, at least snippets of some of the music videos and tour footage and stuff. That stuff obviously was new to this. Well, that's where I was going. If you're going to take a book like that and turn it into a movie, you're going to be able to add video element to it. Mm -hmm. The film suffers for two reasons. Number one, Mike D is not a great orator. Yeah. Uh, and and some of the clearly they they admit they're reading from teleprompters, they're 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 reading canned material. Mm -hmm. And once that veil is broken and it's clearly broken because we're not watching two great orators deliver something where we can't understand that they're reading off screen. Um but so so I, I'm in a Facebook chat group with a bunch of high school friends. I said, hey, we're going to talk about Beastie Boys story. Oh, yeah, should I watch that? I said every Beastie Boys fan should watch that. It has flaws. And I don't think that the person watched the movie based upon that criticism. Mm -hmm. The flaws are that, that, that these two orators don't deliver a fantastic stage show. But if you're a Beastie Boys fan, you forgive all of that immediately. I haven't read the book, David, so all of the photographs, all of the video was kind of new to me. I enjoyed seeing the genesis of any band, any great band yeah. I enjoy seeing the genesis of. And the genesis lifestyle that they were living at 15, 16, 17 years old, sneaking into the punk and, and scene of, of New York City or, or Brooklyn or you know that area, while hip hop is coming in underground on the East Coast, that was just that was fascinating to me. I enjoyed that they were in the right place at the right time. But the other flaw that I had was that it gives you a hint of a great story. We sold ourselves out and realized that we were the actual thing that we were making fun of yeah. during Fight for the Right to Party. We realized that was bad and made changes in our lives. And then that's the whole narrative. And you'd like to know a little bit more about that. But I don't know how you cram more into the two-hour running time. I somewhat disagree with you. I I think that Ad-Rock and Mike D are decent like public speakers. I think what this movie suffers from is that 
their reading from teleprompters because they're really funny if mm. like they're able to riff and like vibe and stuff like you know i think we mentioned um i think it was last episode right yeah we had mentioned last episode or i did uh this documentary 808 that i had seen mm. yep. um and they're in it and they're really fucking funny like yeah and it, but it's but that it's like they're just sitting there talking and you know the director probably interviewed them for an hour and used five minutes of it. You know what I mean? So, I mean, there's yeah. some of that as well, but just like the, them having that freedom to know, like, yeah, we can just kind of talk and riff and vibe and all that kind of stuff rather than needing to be on a rehearsed, like strict script. I think yeah. that probably to hit a running time. Well, for sure. I mean, they can't have a three hour show or whatever, but mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if an audience would sit through that, but well, and they want to make sure they hit certain stories and not leave stuff. I mean, it's I know exactly what you're saying, Carlos. I think there's probably I think where you see it or where I think where, where my head goes to is like great standups who are able to sort of hit that balance of. Yes, they've rehearsed this material or they've done it before in front of audiences, and yet they're finding ways to make it feel like it's sort of evolving in a fresh way. Yeah. There's no attempt to do that here. And part of that is these guys, they, they didn't cut cut their teeth as stand-ups, right? Yeah. I mean, they didn't learn to do that sort of thing. They didn't learn to craft a routine mm-hmm. that they could then kind of vary or, you know, divert from and still be able to come back to and find the through line. Um and you know that, right? So, I mean, these guys were musicians and they used to do stage shows that were based around the songs and those are easier. And, and I'm sure they had little interstitial, you know, dialogue with the crowd, but that, you know, it doesn't matter what you say then. As long as you're entertaining people and having fun with the audience, great. Now go on to the next song. Here, you know, there is this goal of like, we need to deliver these certain important moments Beats. in our timeline. Right, exactly. And so I think, yeah, there in the attempt to make sure that they fit in some of those key stories, those key moments in their evolution, I think it loses some of the spontaneity because I know exactly what you're talking about. I've heard both of these guys in interviews. I remember when the book came out, they did an interview with uh, Marin on WTF and, and that was fun, even though they were kind of, uh, or at least Marin felt they were a little contentious with them, but you know, ad rock is a funny guy he, he can come up with stuff off the top of his head that's pretty entertaining. Mike D comes across a little bit more like a normal average guy than – I don't know. So that, I like their personalities, and I think if they could have found a way to bring a little bit more of that across in the stage show, it probably would have been a little more inviting. Yeah, Springsteen has a really successful Broadway show that got on Netflix. They didn't mm-hmm. record the very first one. Yeah. He had 50, 100 shows to hone the whole show before it was presented to the audience. I'm just saying, that to me, that's a small flaw from this being a great show, yeah. a great exercise. Right. Uh, and the other thing that I wanted to bring up before we moved on to this 903 is, um, you know, Adam Yock is past. So we've mm. got two of three. I can't imagine that those two would ever do another Beastie Boys show without their brother. Right. Right. But at the same time, it's the thesis is given, or at least I took away from the material delivered, that he was not only a third of the group, but the creative, almost like core and guide of the group. 
So can there be a Beastie Boys without this third one? Well, no, of course not. I mean, they say as much. I mean, like, you know, I, I remember when he died. and I mean, Queen hired a new Freddie Mercury. <laughs> you know well, yeah, I mean? but I mean. Uh, it's a shitty example, but you follow where I'm going. Same with well, Journey, no, I mean. Or, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of acts, ACDC, that, that, that have lost a key figure in the group and yet have still gone on. These guys made, I think, the very um, – I respect it. Like, it's a very respectable decision that they felt that this unit that they'd created, you know, Beastie Boys, did not have the integrity of the Beastie Boys if it's missing this crucial member. And as you point out, I think the book and this film actually do great work in establishing just how important he was to everything. Because he was, I think, you know, again, this is, to a certain extent, I guess you have to weigh it with the the pull that we have towards and i'm going to use a term here that uh hagiography or like you know sort of elevating somebody making them into a saint after their their demise you know but but my honest feeling here i remember hearing well before he passed away that he was kind of the innovator in the group he was the guy who was always pushing for a different sound or a different mentality, right? He was the guy who went and sampled from all these different spiritual communities. And, you know, the, they didn't really even get into the whole, like, was the Free Tibet concert and all that kind of stuff that was uh, going on. Yeah, it was a brief. little bit. Yeah, it was yeah just yeah. touched on Just it. a little bit, you know. But he was, like, I think before he died and before they started celebrating him in this way, I think it was pretty well known that he was, you know, the mastermind. I mean, he like, all of them were... were talented lyricists and all of them eventually developed pretty good styles in terms of their you know rapping i think and as musicians drums guitar you know but yauk was the one who seemed like he was the guy who was always a few steps ahead of everybody else in the group and just able to kind of push them into the direction that they needed to go to make the the change that needed to come yeah, I mean, I, I mean, he is he is Nathaniel Hornblower, like he's the like you know creative behind a lot of like their visuals and right all that kind of stuff, and um, you know he directed their concert film, awesome, I fucking shot that, uh, which was a crazy idea that he somehow executed and pulled off, uh, and um, even you know that that eight oh eight doc came after he had died and like. The bit, the bulk of their section of that documentary is talking about them going to the studio and seeing Yauk uh, programming an 808 in a pattern that made no sense and sounded <laughs> crazy and yeah. recording it and then turning the tape around and playing it backwards and it like he had programmed it so that backwards it would hit the right beats to sound like a normal drum pattern yeah. and they're looking at him like this is insane how did you do that like <laughs> I, why would you ever do this and like so i mean yeah. you know he's he's been he's been identified as the yeah as definitely the innovator if not the driving force for a long time and you know i think that you know, I think this is an exercise in praising Yauk a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. And, uh, which, you know, I'm here for, uh, yeah. but, but I don't know. I don't even know if I want to call it a documentary. You know, I feel like, I feel like, uh, it'd be like calling a, a night with Kevin Smith, a documentary that 
film where he's you know just like doing yeah. a Q and A or whatever. No, it's a good example. Um, and I, but I mean, I enjoyed watching it. Like I right. had a good time with it. Um, I've it's, I've also heard that the audio book for the book oh, that we've been I've referencing. Heard that too, and I I've heard it's amazing. That. Because uh, that has I'll, multiple people reading too. Yeah, I think the people that write all those different segments end up reading. Like I know Snoop Dogg reads a little bit in right. it, and like there's a and whole bunch of people. I think they even have some guest readers, like not even people who wrote for the book, but people who they just ask to read this section. Or, yeah, you know, I think like, I think so. I think John C. Riley does one. Yeah, it it's no, you're right. I mean, I think that, and and I guess that's where you know what you're saying, Carlos, that you don't want to call this a documentary. I guess that's. There's part of me that feels like, like it's it's incorrect to label this a film. You know, like there's something yeah. a little bit not because I just I wouldn't use this in a film class. I wouldn't tell people, oh, if somebody said, what movies have you seen lately that have been really it? I would never put this on that. But if I know somebody who loves the Beastie Boys, if That's I know it. somebody who has interest in it, I'd be like, oh, have you checked out that Beastie Boys story, uh, you know, on uh, Apple Plus? Like. You, you should check that out. I mean, that that's fun. Great images. Have you read the book yet? Well, if you haven't, you're going to get even more out of it. You know, so I feel like it's a good experience for a fan, but I don't think it wouldn't be my way of introducing anybody to the Beastie Boys. I wouldn't say part of the Beastie Boys. Well, you should sit down and watch the Beastie Boys story on Apple Plus. I think it, it would make them seem like old guys who are just rehashing their youth or something. And, you know, I think you need to understand and appreciate the music and even the evolution of the music to be able to really enjoy this. But before I forget though, as with the book, I think the stuff I love the most is that early stuff, just because it's, it's things that you kind of know, like in their background, they started out as punk kids in New York city, just after punk had kind of really begun. I mean, they were, you know, this was very early eighties and they were right in there. I mean, they were playing shows with bands like Sonic Youth and they were going to see the Bad Brains and they were, you know, it was, it's fun to hear them talk about that and the stage show portion where they're kind of naming off bands that were in the mix then around them and, and all that and what they were aspiring to do. I, I think that's fun. You know, like, they, again, yeah. that that is just from a pure fan service standpoint where... I love these guys. I, I love the whole story of their career and getting to hear about them as little kids and see those pictures. They look like they're, you know, I mean, they are. They're like 13, 14, 15 years old. It's crazy to think that guys got together that early, had this sort of very haphazard kind of stepping into the business of music, but just were in the right place. That You know, Joe said earlier, right place, right time. You know, New York City, early 80s, as punk and hip hop are kind of happening and that they were able to kind of straddle that line and then eventually tip right over into one of them, but come back, you know what I mean? And find ways to incorporate that punk attitude and even some of the sound of punk into some of those later albums. It's fantastic. Well, with, I mean, the, yeah. Well, with no... Um limits to the notion of creatives being creative. It's something I talk about a lot. It's why I liked Le Choc de Future so much. Creatives being creative. And these kids set no limits on themselves and became one of the biggest bands with the biggest fan base of all times. I had a sit down with my daughter after the fact and I said, you are not taking advantage. I mean, we, we watched this movie and this was the life lesson. Those kids were 15, 16, uh, you said 13, 14, David, my daughter's 14. You aren't pursuing this hard enough. 
Because look what these guys did. Well, that- it, it, it's pretty rare circumstances that they found themselves in. And, you know, also, I think the thing that... But it's putting I, yourself... David, but it's no, putting I yourself understand, out but there. It, but, it's, but it's also, like, it is, it is all those funny little, not even coincidences, but those pieces that need to fall into place. I mean, how many kids... When meet Rick Rubin? Years old, well, yeah. meet Rick Rubin, meet Russell Simmons, and Russell Simmons knows, oh, if I get a bunch of white guys who can rap, I'm going to be able to sell a shitload of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You guys are the best. You're the best. We're the, you know, <laughs> it's like the smoke he was blowing up their ass. I could smell it from my living room when they were talking about it. It was, it's just very funny that, you know, again, a, a lot of credit. We were young and guys. naive. We were young and naive. Yeah. And then we got smart and then move on to the next segment. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the anyway. All right. Well, and that they were able to bounce back. And yeah, it's a fun, it's a, it's an important story. I think like Joe said, I think for anybody who's an aspiring artist, potentially, I think anybody who's kind of got that inkling, it could have that kind of impact, but I think it helps a whole hell of a lot. If you have some understanding of the beastie boys, which is where I said earlier, I don't know that I would throw this in front of the typical 13 year old, because I don't know that the typical 13 year old has knowledge of the beastie boys already. Well, now, that's bad parenting. Well, <laughs> Potentially, yes. A lot of bad parents out there. All right. Well, <laughs> would a bad parent give the 903 hazy IPA to their child? <laughs> I don't know. We're in quarantine rules. Anything goes. <laughs> now I was glad we got. I was glad we got to take a trip to Sherman. Um, Carlos porch bombed us, David, with this gift. He sure did. Carlos, you got to have one before we tried this one. What do you think? I am not a huge fan. No? What's the problem? I don't know, honestly. Um, Does it have a metallic undertaste to you guys? I'm not getting that. I'll I'll say what I think. So I like it. I I don't think it's terrible. Um, Or, you know, I think it's drinkable. I think to get the ABV that they have, it seems like it's got a little of that typical double IPA, super malty kind of thing going on. Now, I think they've balanced it a little bit. I think the hops, uh, the style of this is better than your typical double IPA for sure. I would much rather drink this than a lot of double IPAs out there, but it still has kind of that sweet malty backbone that I think especially drinking a whole can, you know, 12 ounces of this starts to feel a little taxing by the end. I haven't quite finished mine. Um, earlier on, I was enjoying it more, but as I get towards the end, I'm kind of feeling like, oh, this is heavier than I want it to be. That for that for me is the is the thing that holds it back. Yeah, I think the maltiness for me too. Um, I guess I just, you know, I want a little more like floral hop flavor coming through rather than the super sweet maltiness yeah and yeah, you, want, you want a balance yeah and that's this, this beer is unbalanced for i mean me. it's 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 more balanced than um like daddy's juice box or something like that yes um, yes it's it's not so, it's not quite that we ever had <laughs> it's not quite that bad um but it, it it just it just barely falls short whenever i got it and i drank one I immediately messaged uh, some 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 beer drinking buddies and said, "Hey, has anybody had this?" Because I wanted to see if like I'd got a bad batch or if I was just crazy and like 
uh, maybe I had maybe I had drank something before that kind of had you know tampered with my palate a little mm-hmm. bit or something, and was trying to get some some second opinions, and nobody in like you know my immediate beer drinking uh, circle had had it, and so that was another reason that I wanted to for us to do it on this show because I I was interested to to get a second opinion on it. Yeah, I always hate it when a Texas brewery comes in and we're not as hot on the beer as we'd like to be. I guess I'm, a, I guess I'm equating, I've always done that. Like my palate is, there's a metallic taste. And if the two of you are in agreement that that's just a heavy, heavy malt bill, I don't know why the El Chingon doesn't do that to me because you guys are telling me it's mega, mega malt. Yeah, and but I do I mean, get a metallic that taste one also from that. Has, that one also has the dirty you know dallas water dirt, yeah whatever yeah. dude <laughs> what i'm thinking about this 903 is we just didn't get a great entry beer for a hazy ipa when i hear hazy ipa and i see that eight point and if you're going to get there through that kind of malt bill it's going to leave a metallic taste in my on my palate and it's just it's disagreeable with me but damn it i hope that we can get some more 903 in the near near future because well, i hate saying that out loud well, we know. I mean, I, I can tell you for a fact that I've had some 903 that I would be much more excited about. I And I still wouldn't put this I, – I know we're, we're splitting hairs here a little bit, but, you know, I wouldn't call this a bad beer by any stretch. I think no, this to bad. me – I think bad. this right. to me is a beer that I just wouldn't necessarily go back to. I think for certain people who like that heavier kind of uh, – you know, approach to the double IPA, then, you know, yeah, it, it could work. It isn't one that I'm going to pick up regularly, but I like the brewery. I don't think they're putting out bad beer and I know they're putting out some fantastic beer, especially on the stout side. And that, and that'll probably be where we go next for the 100%. For the they do so, make, hey, they, so are we, are we recommending Beastie Boy story or not? I, 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 I <laughs> I kind of recommend it, and if you're a Beastie Boys fan, said, it's yeah, definitely well, you should check it out. I think you and I, Joe, have said pretty clearly, yes, if you like the Beastie Boys, if you have awareness of the Beastie Boys, and you're looking for a fun way to kind of take in their story of you know wh- how they evolved, where they began, what they became, this is fun. The, yeah, you're do right. it. Enjoy yourself. Carlos, I feel like, is a little bit cooler on it. I mean, no, I, I, I agree with that 100%. I think that if you are a fan, then you're going to have a f- good time with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I think, you know, um, like with last week's stock, uh, TFW, no GF, or maybe with previous stocks we've done, like uh, Biggest Little Farm or Into the Abyss or things like that, like you don't need to be someone right. that right. like has a garden in their backyard. You don't need to know somebody on death row. You don't, you know, you don't need to have an incel in your life or anything. You don't need to have any, <laughs> you don't need to have any connection uh, to those worlds in order to go into those docks and, you know, be able to, for them to be like really interesting and you to really get something out of it. But yeah, if you have never heard of the Beastie Boys and the the name Ad Rock you think is like you know something out of a geology textbook or something, uh, then you're not gonna have the best time with it, and it may not be something you want to spend two hours doing. Um, 
So, you know, again, like you said, hesitant to call it a film or even like a documentary, um, necessarily just because of, you know, I don't know, the format and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, if you like the BC boys, fucking knock yourself out. It'll be a great time. If the live documentary is an emerging documentary subset, I don't think this is the best one I'm ever going to see. Well, and, I, and right. I don't think, and I don't think most people will pursue it as a format. I think that, that this is a very specific case where these guys know they have the audience they have, and they know that their story is going to be compelling to that audience, and they knew they could do it this way. Well, as we go into the break here, um, you know, keep that in mind that uh, there are other docs to be seen. This may not be the best representative of documentary as a genre and what it can do. But uh, for BC Boys fans, something you might want to check out. But we are going to talk in the second half about a film made by the same director here that I think has a lot more going for it as a film. When we return. back we're going to open a second beer uh waste no time david do you want to talk about this one sure yeah this you know as uh as i was at the uh bottle shop not that long ago i was looking uh perusing the shelves thinking about what we could drink on an episode and i saw this one and it kind of jumped out at me because this was one of those early import beers that i remember this this was when i was you know before drinking age uh, a friend having a birthday party. I think he was maybe turning 17 or 18. And he took the extra effort to not just get somebody to pick us up a w- case of Rolling Rock or Budweiser or whatever the cheapest beer was, but he actually went to the level of having somebody particularly procure him at least a four pack. I know he had a few of these bottles of Samuel Smith's Oatmeal Stout. And I remember it, and it stood out to me. I don't think I drank one of them because that was when I was really not drinking much at all. And I, if I had anything, it was maybe some of that Miller Lite or Michelob Lite or whatever the heck it was. It was just the cheap domestic that was being drank. But I remember him specifically having this one. And it is one that I've had since. And it's kind of a – I mean, it, it's just, I think, a very important import beer that Americans have, have uh, you know, who were getting turned on to beer – 20, 30 years ago, before craft beer was what it what it is here, that um that it, that it stands out from there. So we'll see if it still does. I know. Have either of you guys had this before? I don't think I have. Uh, yeah, I have, uh, because back when I first got into craft beer and was going to the local stores, you kind of want to try everything you can. You don't sure. you don't know exactly what you're trying, and the label looked very very fancy. So, uh, yeah, I grabbed it once. It's the Samuel Smith Oatmeal Stout. Mm -hmm. What's the ABV on this guy? Do we know? 
That is a great question. I should have looked before. You should have, David. We're going to have to give you three beer in a movie demerits. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that it says on the bottle itself. It doesn't. Um, Carlos, you want to guess? And I'll guess, too, before okay, David looks it up. Give it, it a guess. Give it a guess. I am going to say that it is 4.8%. I'm going to go, uh, I was going to say 5 or 5.1%. Price, Price is right, is right rules. rules. David, who wins? <laughs> so what is it, Joe? I said five to five point okay. one. Pick one. You can't say both. Yeah, because no, I, I can't do the oh, over under. Five, 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 five. Okay, you hit it right on the head. It <laughs> is a five percenter. <laughs> oh, so three. Close. What's the opposite of a demerit? I get three of those. <laughs> <laughs> three gold stars. You get three credits. Three gold oh, stars. Well, three the stout. The stout. Three bottle caps. Heels, the stout on the heels of that hazy IPA is a nice rounded out show, guys. Yeah. Right. Cheers. Cheers. Um, yeah, I, so, you said it before, David. Uh, Spike Jones has made far more superior films than this one, and we're going to talk about his directorial debut from 1999 being John Malkovich. Right. His his feature debut. Absolutely. Um, That's what I mean. No, no. You're right, though. I mean, this and this is where he really came onto the scene, I think, for most uh, film lovers. Uh, you know, like I said earlier in the episode, he definitely had done a lot of photography work. I think Carlos had mentioned that he he's well known for some skateboarding. What, was it? Did you say he made the most sort of renowned skateboarding video of all time? I mean, in my personal opinion, he please. That's what we're all about here. Yeah, he <laughs> he made the skate video that changed the way people looked at skate videos. I mean. Right. Uh, there were there were other other ambitious kind of efforts beforehand um so he i mean he definitely wasn't the first but i mean he took he took skateboarding videos into this like crazy cinematic world using uh like painting um kicker ramps green and then keying them out in post-production so it looked like somebody was just like ollieing like 15 feet in the air you know there's a whole sequence where every piece of the skateboard is painted green and and it's keyed out so it looks like they're just floating around um and it's the girls girl skateboards video yeah right easily one of the most monumental like videos of my young adult life i mean i watched this thing over and over and over again it was so good that one of my best friends stole it from me (laughs) and i still i need to get another copy because i don't have it anymore um but i mean this is like you know eric costin paul rodriguez like big heavy hitting names that would go you know go on to do you know incredible things um, and Spike Jones, uh, a co-owner of uh, Girl Skateboards, or he was at least. I don't know if he still is or not. Yeah. yeah, Spike Jones' career trajectory is not only incredible, but somewhat similar to many directors that were coming up in the business at the same time. The skateboard videos into MTV, MTV videos. Uh, of course, Buddy Holly, Weezer was the one that, you know, got him a lot of attention first in the MTV Spike music Jones video. Spike Jones did that video? Yeah. He did, oh, yeah. Nice. Well, I love that Cannonball video. by the Breeders, 100% from Sonic Youth. Yeah, I mean, this, these are, well, and then obviously the, the Beastie Boys sabotage video, yeah. which comes up in the Beastie Boys story, which was really done on no budget 
and kind of on the fly semi-illegally from what the documentary says one of of the most celebrated videos of all time sure um you know really a a collaboration with them and and especially uh mca but still yeah i mean you you just you know think back to the 90s and you know all the different uh videos that kind of popped out on mtv as it was maybe having its last gasp of actually being a, a place for music videos to be seen and he was there. I mean, yeah, he was Michelle, the Michelle, Kong, the Far Side, the Chemical Brothers, Ween, just so many great acts that he was working. Yeah, on. alongside directors like Michelle Gondry, David Fincher, Garth Jennings. I mean, even Michael Bay got his start back in the MTV days. You know, like being able to say, "I can do a three-minute or a seven-minute extended video." Mick G, one of your favorites, uh, Carlos. Mm-hmm. Uh, got his start in the of Charlie's Angel. the music video, yeah. but then into into feature film. And if this right. is your in, this is your directorial debut of a feature film, this product, 1999, and then you got to go back to 1999 because guys, 1999 was an amazing year for for movies. Matrix, just, Fight Fight Club, Magnolia, The Sixth Sense. Just so it's clear, oh. uh, yeah, right came after this film that was early 2000 so he had already done this um also interesting that you bring up fight club because the don't talk about it beastie boys documentary talks spends a good amount of time talking about the dust brothers who did the the music for fight club Uh, yeah office space blair witch project i mean these are all 1999 films of course uh alongside your favorite carlos um god damn it i lost my joke Never mind. It was so a, horror, a wild, wild west. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. a great, great American uh, so, yeah, cinema. Here comes onto the scene this video director, this skateboard video director turned music video director turned commercial artist who's made a feature film being John Malkovich. And this is my first time to watch it in about 10 years, probably. Yeah. And I was really curious how I thought it would hold up. But I'd love to hear what you guys thought. Spike Jones directorial debut. David. Yeah, I mean, th- this this was a film that I remember it so well when it was coming out. I remember hearing about this film being made. Um, you know, I was in college. I was, I, I think it was my senior. Yeah, it was my senior year, and and hearing that this strange film was going to come out. That's sort of this head spinning kind of film. That's about if you could inhabit this other person, and it's about John Malkovich, and why the hell would they choose John Malkovich as the person that they're going to inhabit there? But they've done it, and here it is, and John Cusack's in it, and it, okay, I'm going to go, and Cameron Diaz. Yeah. So, uh, I, I definitely remember hearing about it, being kind of excited about it. The buzz was was big, at least among college students at the time, you know, which I was one of them. And I remember going to see it, and it even with all that buildup, it delivered so well on all those promises, like way better than I expected it to. Um, watching it again, which this is probably. I mean, I've probably seen the film a dozen times and it wasn't even that long ago, probably five or six years ago that I I watched it the last time. Um, It just it is still just a really, really well-made movie. It is a movie that it starts in this really modest place and just gradually builds into this zanier and zanier thing, but never loses its anchor of feeling like it's connected to reality. And I think that is a huge 
feat to pull off where you have a film that conceptually is going so crazy. I mean, the idea of we have found a portal that can take you into this person's whatever their being you know what i mean like the body mind split is kind of part of what this film is playing with but like what is a person who are you when you inhabit that can another inhabit it's all of these strange questions that it kind of opens up but it never does it in a way that feels like a lecture or feels like you're in philosophy class it does it so entertainingly so much fun great performances um it the look of it is drab especially early on in the film, but it totally, but that's part of what anchors it. It's part of what makes it feel real is you have these spaces, the apartment that they live in, you know, John Cusack and, and Cameron Diaz, uh, the, the office that he works in, the, the highway, the edge of the highway that they shoot out into when they get ejected out of John Malkovich's body. All of it looks so drab and real and just of that moment in the late 90s. You never, I don't know, you never questioned it, even though it is one of the most ludicrous premises I've ever seen on film. I mean, everything about it is really bizarre. I mean, there's, you know, just the tons of like insane animals in their house, apartment, or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> right. um, Cameron Diaz is like somewhat playing against type. I'm, I don't, oh, way I, against. I don't know. Way. I don't know how established her type was at that point. I'm not. She was, she was totally thought of as a, you know, eye candy sort of, uh, you know, f- female. Had, she was. She had started s- out as a modeling career. She had oh, been okay. in the mask and a few other things, but she was the thought mask. Of a, that's right. That's right. Yeah. H- had something about Mary happened yet? Yes, I think it that did. was a little. That was, was, like still, that was kind of that was kind of broad comedy. And well, she yeah, was still, but she's supposed uh, to be attractive. She was it? the beautiful object of affection, you yeah. know, attraction. That yeah, she had never done anything that really downplayed her beauty in this way. I mean, they make her look plain, this, very, and kind of crazy. Very, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. This movie came out one year after. There's something about Mary, so very, she was okay. at, she was at the height of her powers and really went anti typecast for this film i don't know if she's at the height yet she was Uh, getting there pretty close pretty close i guess i guess that would be a sub conversation a rabbit hole we can go down when did cameron diaz get to the height of her powers charlie's angels i would say that there the the burn after there's something about mary was certainly a high plateau yeah and she went opposite in fact she said in 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 an interview that i read that she did not realize when she took the role that she'd be basically unrecognizable that's yeah. wild. Uh, yeah. So, 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 I mean, just starting there and like, the, uh, you know, all of the intro puppet scenes are pretty wild. Um, especially when he's out on the street puppeteering. Uh, that seems really funny to me. Uh, and then, yeah, the floor seven and a half, Octavia Spencer uh, making a brief in a appearance. Very tiny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Before she had taken off. Yeah. Yeah. She's in there, which is, which is, which is neat. Um, the receptionist is very frustrating for me. <laughs> very great uh, place. But, yes. uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole thing is just, the whole thing is crazy enough that, that, yeah, you're right. You never question it. You're just like, this is weird where where are we going you know yeah i think if it were any more grounded it might be some you know counterintuitively less believable but because it's so far out there you're just like sure why not like we're already in between floors of the skyscraper and everyone's 
seems to be strangely okay with hunching over everywhere they go and killing their bet, you know, fine, whatever. Um, but, but I also, whenever, cause I, I was kind of aware of this film, at least by name before I ever saw it, which was, I don't know, probably five or six years ago, maybe, maybe longer, but about there. And, um, yeah, John Malkovich really is such an interesting choice. And it's such a funny bit in the movie that everyone is like, yeah, John Malkovich, <laughs> like one of the great actors nice of our time. Film. Yeah, but nobody knows anything that he's been in. Like nobody or can the, name any of his films, which like, <laughs> honestly, I really can't either for the most part, uh, other than like of Mice and Men, I guess, and uh, maybe a few more. But yeah, uh, the, the, the one guy does recognize him correctly in the restaurant as having played the, and I'm going to use an offensive word, yeah. retard. Yeah. That uh, and, 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 and that he was very impressed by it because he has a cousin who's a retard. Yeah, and hey, David, I just want to thank you for the warning. It seems yeah. it seems to make John Malkovich fairly uncomfortable. Uh, he's because he just keeps going. Thank you, thank you to to, yes. to to everything he says, not changing his response. Uh, but Catherine Keener's great. I feel like she's also kind of playing against type, or at least the type that I'm used to seeing her as. Yeah. I don't I don't know a ton about her career before this. But at least from from my perspective, like usually she's like a very like nice, like sweet kind of endearing woman. And she's savage in this movie. <laughs> like We talk and we haven't talked about in a while about the universe that a film creates. And what this movie does so well is it just doesn't give you time to question the universe. Right. I mean, the, the craziness really begins, I guess, in the apartment. But you're to these are the characters she takes in stray animals not stray animals but like um rehab animals there's a friggin chimpanzee in their house but this That's is going just, through psychoanalysis yeah this is just <laughs> right this is just the universe he takes a job this is just the universe seven and a half floor this is just the universe and eventually you're like you give into it and if you do you're taking on a wild amazing ride where the ideas never stop the last third of the film just as creative densely as the first third of the film yeah uh the puppeteering as a, a gag on the street becomes the major part of john cusack's ability to to manipulate john john malkovich we love john cusack on this show what a great role for him and then it makes you wonder for me about like the 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 sense of humor of john malkovich like to be able to agree to this. Oh yeah. Two years following Con Air, mind you. <laughs> That's right, the heights of Con Air. The, yeah, I mean, it, it it's funny to read a little bit, which which I have uh, about you know how this all went down, how this came together. I mean, Kaufman had the script and was putting it out there, trying to get you know interest. Coppola, who at Francis Ford Coppola, who at the time was the father-in-law of Spike Jones. Uh, you know, mm, yeah, found the script, right. had it brought that's to right. him, and then kind of says, hey, this might be the thing that you make for your feature, because he knew he was kind of aspiring to do a feature film, like his daughter was at the time, too. Yeah. Um, and, you know, gave him this crazy thing. And, you know, he locked into it, got attached to it, and then they had to, they had to convince Malkovich. And apparently, you know, Malkovich wasn't, like, instantly on board, but he was intrigued. I mean, it's has to be intriguing when somebody sends you a script where it's like, well, you're going to play yourself, but you're yourself and people can port into your head and you're going to be part. You know. um, oh, and David, your name is in the title. 
Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, I, but I think he, there was some trepidation there where he knew, like, okay, this project, if it tanks, this could definitely leave a really black stain on my career where oh, you're going to sure. like, you know, oh, my God, this guy's so obsessed with himself that he's doing films about himself, you know. But, um, you know, luckily for him, it, I think it only burnished his... But he, full, he fully commits to the project. Well, it's beautiful. I mean, when you... And rewatching it and kind of appreciating all the different things he goes through, you know, when he's playing these different versions of himself with other people inhabiting him and controlling him and all that, it's really a tour de force of acting in so many of those scenes with him and in all of them, you know, Cusack play, we've just talked about, like almost everybody's playing against type in a certain way. Um, you know, Cusack as sort of downtrodden and kind of nebbishy as you've ever seen him with the long stringy hair and the, you know, I mean, it's just, it's so strange, but it all fits together perfectly. And that's what I, I think still to this day, you know, 20 plus years later when I watch it, I'm just impressed at how well they were able to put this thing together. It all makes perfect sense, even though everything about it should not. Yeah, I agree. Um, it is, I mean, it's a great movie and definitely something that I think you, I think, you know, I think it's a good entryway into somewhat more, I don't know. I I think avant-garde might be too strong a word, but some, some more like indie film that's kind of out there for people that aren't used to that kind of thing i feel mm -hmm. like this is like a good starting point because it is really weird but it yeah. has people that you recognize in it and so it has that kind of like uh that that familiarity of like yeah. these big like household name kind of stars in it and i think for someone that hasn't really ventured very far into this kind of thing this would be something i would show them and be like hey watch this see what you think and like yeah. you know if you like this there's plenty more where this came from uh, but wh where would you take them next carlos uh i guess it depends on how much i like them uh if they kind of annoy me maybe i'll just go straight to synecdoche new york <laughs> <laughs> oh i like that movie what are you talking I, oh, about oh no i mean i do too but it's that i mean that one's a ride like that's it's not challenging. yeah it <laughs> it's challenging. not you know I think, easy reviewing Right. I think I think with this one, I'm, I might even put Eternal Sunshine before it for, for people. I do think that might be even more approachable just because yeah. the, the characters here aren't as likable. I mean, it True. did strike me watching this again, how much. And I, it's funny because it's really this has evolved over the years. I, I remember this was a film where it might have been one of the first films where Catherine Keener really stood out to me, which is strange because in my mind, she was that. And then everything else was a deviation. And then eventually I kind of realized, no, she's actually more this other, more softer, sympathetic kind of character usually. Um, but in this case, you know, she is so I mean, it's still watching it again. I'm like shocked that how could Lottie go back to her? I mean, she was terrible. She, <laughs> she's the worst person in the entire film. Because and Lottie yet, is right for Maxine's manipulation. I guess so, but the, but but then they seem happy at the end. I don't know. It, there there's something weird. Point, about yeah, the, you're right. 
the Maxine character that that uh, still, but it's it doesn't it doesn't detract from the film. It just means that there's really almost no sympathetic. Lottie's the most sympathetic character, and yet she, she's stepped on by everybody. I don't know. So th- there's part of me, and Eternal Sunshine has a little bit more of a traditional kind of love story at its center that I think a lot of people, even though it's a tragic love story, could lock into and appreciate and, and, and kind of get that. But, you know, that's six of one, half dozen of another. I think if you showed either of these films to somebody who's kind of on the precipice of maybe having interest in slightly higher concept, stranger, um, you know, I would say postmodern kind of filmmaking, Okay, yeah, I, I could see showing them either Eternal Sunshine or being John Malkovich. But there was a genre bend here. I mean, this movie, when it came out in 1999, defied a lot of ability to put it on a list. People hadn't right. seen anything like this before. Very, very cerebral. And uh, I admire Spike Jones so much for what he did here. I haven't seen adaptation enough. It's time for a It's a revisit. great one. It's it, it's truly great that that one I think is a little tougher for a lot of folks. I don't I don't think it has quite the the accessibility that being John Malkovich does, but it's a it's a fantastic film. And for those in our audience who love Nick Cage, it's it's one of his absolute best roles. It's so fucking good. It yeah. really I. That's one I that like I push I people to like see. I feel like we'll be tackling that at some point. I sure hope so. I, I, I actually haven't rewatched it in a while. I think I think my friend Sean still has my DVD of it. Um, yeah, but, yeah, for, for folks that are listening to this podcast for the movie talk, we're going to assume that you're a big fan of being John Malkovich as much as, as we are. I would, uh, I would say it's a safe assumption. I, I, I also w- wanted to quickly negate David's Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind because Tumblr has kind of uh, ruined that, or it did. Well, it's not really around anymore. It's just that movie's just such a like, yeah, this is my favorite movie, man. Oh, um, see, they, 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 I, I probably escaped having to to be bear bear witness to that. I mean, it's so. great. Don't get me wrong. Like, it is really fucking good. But yeah. Um, also, we should tackle Michelle Gondry at some point. Uh, I know yeah. he was briefly referenced earlier. Uh, I don't yeah. think we've watched any of uh, any of his movies. No, no, we should definitely do that. Joe, were you, do you have have final thoughts? Yeah, but I mean, well, I just, I just said it. I, anyone who listens to this podcast is going to be a huge fan of being John Malkovich and and the three of us were yeah the Spike Jones thumbprint was not on that Beastie Boys story in a way that that designated it being needing to be a Spike Jones documentary outside of the fact that he had a very strong relationship with the Beastie Boys which is heartwarming if you're a Beastie Boys fan but you know what's interesting is i think he i think his thumbprint was heavier on the last Aziz Ansari special than it was on that Beastie Boys documentary i was just looking at his filmography right now. And yeah. I, for, I forgot that he had directed that, but that is a very uh, specific looking comedy special um, in a very, a very unique way that I think. Well, I said it earlier. I admire his career. You should, I mean, his filmography on Wikipedia is pretty gosh darn interesting. Yeah. yeah he's done some great stuff. Yeah. No, I, I think, uh, you know, if, if you're, you're new to Spike Jones, uh, you know, starting with being John Malkovich is not a bad idea, but I, I think there's a lot out there too. And, and, you know, if you want to look at some of his music video work and some of this more recent stuff that he's done, it, 
it's all good. Yeah. I mean, there, there's there's lots there's lots to be seen there. Yeah, he did that. Uh, I didn't realize this until just a few minutes ago. He did that Fat Boy Slim video with Christopher Walken. That's right. Great video. Yeah, love I mean, that one. Yeah. But um, is this a great beer? What do you guys think? I don't know. I mean, it's been a while since I revisited this. I, w- I wanted to give it another shot. Uh, I'm pretty impressed by it. I, I love that it's got the body that it does for as light an ABV as it has. Yeah, I was I was going to say personally, as you know, someone having it for the first time, I, I really like it, actually. Um, you know, 5% uh, is a little lower than, you know, I typically prefer my stouts, but it is very tasty. It is not so, like intensely heavy but it's not you know really thin bodied either it's very drinkable um very delicious got all that roasty kind of flavor that you want out of a stout um and i think that you know possibly underrated it's not a beer i hear people talking about very much but i mean it's a solid like um easily accessible probably everywhere kind of beer as maybe you can get Sam Smith began operation in 1758. There you go. It's a lot of practice. We're we're drinking the origin of what stout or how it was introduced, Guinness, to America whenever that occurred. And now I think that a a beer like Sam Smith is just probably going to gather a little more dust than it should at the liquor store because we've got all these American breweries putting all kinds of crazy things into stouts. But if you want to taste where a stout was supposed to come from, or where a stout came from, rather, what the base of the recipe was, I feel like we're drinking a little bit of history. I agree. Yeah, I, yeah, 100%. I mean, there are definitely crazier, more experimentally flavored things out there that you can get. You can get, you know, Mississippi mud pie stouts. You can get coconut macaroon stouts. You can get, like, you know... Also, you know, Irish coffee, cream stouts, golden stouts now, as we've talked about on the podcast. Uh, but this but is every once, but every once in a while, we'll have a conversation about how, you know what? This is a delicious IPA. It doesn't have any fruit, anything in it. It's just yeah. a good, solid basis of the recipe. That's what this is delivering tonight. Yeah, and it's—I yeah. mean—it's good to go back to basics too, just in general, not just with stouts, but with any style. And I mean, we're kind of seeing it a little bit in craft beer as a whole nationwide. That uh, you know, the crispy boy, quote unquote, is becoming uh, a little trendier now than it had previously been. So we're getting a lot of lighter styles, like you know, pilsners or you know, other kinds of. You know, like for instance, that wall ball we drink. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, India that's pale a, lager. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a, a little crispier than you know usually, but yeah, you're right. The the all stat Kolsch is getting really popular. Um, yeah. You know, stuff like that. And so, you know, I think every now and then, you know, it's a, it's an it's an ebb and flow. Like, let's see how crazy and how far we can push this envelope. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you reach a certain point where, like, okay, now let's remember why we kind of started doing this and just do the fundamentals and really make sure that we're still good at, at the basics. And fashion, then... fashion is cyclical. Beer is cyclical. And when you get back to the basics, I guess Sam Smith's oatmeal stout is the standard that we try to build upon. Yeah. This is, this is just a nice crisp white tea. 
everyone's gotta <laughs> everyone's gotta have one you know and, and it went down really easy yeah super. yeah Oh, what a fun episode. Spike Jones, two great beers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us what you think about Spike Jones and these two particular movies that we've talked about. And if you've had anything from 903 or if you're a fan of the Samuel Smith Oatmeal Stout, uh, you can do all of that good stuff uh, by following us and interacting with us on social media. You can do that on Twitter at Beer Movie Show. You can do it on Instagram at Beer in a Movie. And you can do it at Facebook.com slash Beer in a Movie TX. Beer in a Movie Podcast.com is our home base. You can find a link there to listen to all of our past episodes absolutely free. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us out a great deal. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of in the future. Now is definitely the time to do that because we are... As most as most are quarantined, not going to movie theaters, not a ton of new release action happening. So we are constantly brainstorming different themes, directors to dive into, all that kind of stuff. And so we really like to hear from everybody. And uh, we have since all of this started, um, you know, I would say have done some listener programmed episodes. That might be a little too much of a reach, but we've definitely like you know listen to what you guys have said and made decisions based on that. Uh, and so now is the time to hear the episode that you've been waiting for, but you got to let us know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, until next time. I don't mean to brag. I don't mean to boast, but I'm intercontinental when I eat French toast. <laughs>